and welcome to Backstory Podcast, where we dissect engaging story from the ground up. Literary story, screenplay, lyrics, and unpublished manuscript. We take a deep dive every Sunday night into the writing process from the vantage point of narrative history. Each week we delve into the nuts and bolts of what makes for absorbing and thought-provoking reading, listening, and viewing when it comes to the written word. And we're so glad you're here to join us. Tonight, we have something a little different for you. We'll be including a more informal discussion on the subject of articulation via Deborah Feldman's third installment memoir, Exodus Revisited. The clip is a sample preview of the types of conversations we'll be having in our Backstory Readers Club, premiering July 1st, where we dissect the writing of top-shelf authors through select portions of their bodies of work. If you like what you hear on that subject tonight, you might like to sign up for the Backstory Readers Club and become a participating member at www.danaisrael.com. We'll be wrapping up our subject tonight on foreshadowing early in a story from last week, covering element number three, and we'll be starting in on the subject of articulation. First, let's do a quick review on what we have covered so far. You may want to go to www.danaisrael.com to take a look at Backstory Blog number 1 for the work-in-progress reading we are referencing from last week. To recap, if you'll remember, last week we began covering the subject of foreshadowing early in the story writing process and listened to my mom, Dana Israel, address a passage from her work-in-progress this year, a transformational memoir, as an example of using symbolism through symbolic object. We talked about Shirley Jackson's use of symbolism through symbolic object in her well-known short story, The Lottery. And we talked about how foreshadowing through the element of symbolism often overlaps with the use of specific and select language, a second element in the operation of foreshadowing early in a story. For our third element of foreshadowing, We'll be talking tonight about the importance of establishing place of origin or location. Here's my mom, Dana Israel, to discuss the subject of foreshadowing early in a story through the element of location. Hi everybody, it sure is great to be here. I always find the subject of foreshadowing early in story absolutely fascinating. I think the subject of place or location is one we often take for granted in the writing process, and it can appear obvious in importance. But one of the things I've recognized about location is that establishing locale early can mean different things as a story unfolds. A story can begin and end in one place, as it does with Shirley Jackson's short story, The Lottery which we talked a little bit about last week, or it can begin in one place and end up in a location that can appear wholly unrelated to where the story began. In both cases, the initial location functions to foreshadow further story events, whether that location stays the same or changes. In Jackson's The Lottery, the entire story setting is a small New England town. Jackson begins by anchoring us and pointing us forward in the very first sentence when she writes, The morning of June 27th, 
was clear and sunny, with the fresh warmth of a full summer day. The flowers were blossoming profusely, and the grass was richly green. In the lengthy second sentence, she writes, The people of the village began to gather in the square, between the post office and the bank, around 10 o'clock. In some towns, there were so many people that the lottery took two days and had to be started on June 26th. But in this village, where there were only about 300 people, the whole lottery took less than two hours. So it could begin at 10 o'clock in the morning and still be through in time to allow the villagers to get home for noon dinner. Jackson uses time and a sense of place in this second sentence to instill in us who the people were or are geographically. Native New Englanders of the small town variety who are notorious for being sticklers on time and place. By introducing the residents, both young and old, early in the story according to their regional characteristics, we progressively become very clear on the fact that the townspeople's attitudes and behaviors are inextricably bound to where they live. The people become a living testament to their location and what has gone on before their arrival and participation in a community act. While Jackson stays within one locale, Deborah Feldman, in her three-part memoir series, begins her story in an old-world American borough of Brooklyn, New York, and traverses the Atlantic, where her story finds resolve in Germany. Albeit unconsciously, there is a foreshadowing of Europe and then Germany at the beginning, and even while these appear to be incongruous places— the seeds for the latter are sown early in Feldman's accounts and recollections. So, Mom, if I may, are you saying that there can be an unconscious aspect to writing, that images can appear early and that a writer may not be completely aware of how significant they are, and then as their writing progresses in a story, the fullness of a story emerges and it becomes apparent that the beginnings of the story were a kind of portent of things to come all along? That's a very interesting way to put your understanding, Nishama. In so many words, I would say yes. I would also say that your understanding brings us to the next subject of tonight's episode, and that is the topic of articulation. There are levels of awareness involved in articulation, and I think that is what you are touching upon with your understanding of how foreshadowing through the element of place or location can function early in a story. Hmm. Wow. I think the unconscious and conscious aspects of writing and reading, for that matter, really are fascinating. Let's tune in now and listen in while my mom, Dana Israel, begins to address the subject of articulation with regard to the third installment of Deborah Feldman's memoir series, Exodus Revisited, published in 2021 by Plume. So we're talking about Deborah Feldman's Exodus Revisited. And one of the things that strikes me is that this is very much a rewrite of her her original exodus. 
So as I began to say is that I think that whenever, when I think about the process of just thinking, reading, writing, I was saying that I, I think that um, what we do is that we think in our mind, in our heads, and the words in our heads are never completely formed. When we then speak those words, they become fuller. But even then, they come out of us, we can hear them, we can see them in a sense. And if other people are listening, we can get something um, back from them in terms of what they think of what we're saying. We see their facial expressions, we see their body language, we have some kind of a response. And then we can go from there, we can, you know, clarify what we're saying, etc, etc, or not. And then we also are looking and seeing and hearing and we can then um, ask ourselves, is this what I'm trying to say? Is this what I really think? And then we bring it into more completion. And so when I think about Deborah Feldman's um, Exodus Revisited, as I'm reading it now, and there's some incredibly insightful statements in there. She's um, expresses herself very well. Um, her writing uh, is much better than uh, in the original Exodus. But what I notice is in the original Exodus, she covers some very personal and very private experiences that, um, for me at least, thankfully they are missing in, so far in the um, Exodus Revisited. And so I was talking, we were talking about how, um, what does that mean? And when those um, almost sensational, really, experiences are dropped from the original, they are not showing up in Revisited. And what's happening in Revisited is I get a sense, I'm getting a much clearer picture of the things that I read in the original, I'm getting, <clears throat> I'm getting the details. I'm getting the rationale. Perhaps I feel that Deborah is explaining why perhaps she stayed with more sensational topics in the first version. So, you know, it. There are many things in Deborah's story that um, I think are food for thought for the whole question of identity, cultural identity, religious identity, spiritual identity. Um, she is on this journey. Um, essentially, she's telling us how it is that she arrived in Germany, in Berlin, how it is that she ultimately became a German citizen. And when I first read the original, I thought, well, um, you know, some of the material in here is so sensational that perhaps she fled um, the country and, you know, basically that's the reason she ended up in Germany. But what she does is she goes back and she very skillfully rewrites the story for me as the reader, for us. 
And she explains, she is explaining this was her journey. And it makes me think about how any of us reveals ourselves. She talks about how when her the first installment in her memoir trilogy came out, um, she was shocked that basically it took her by surprise. It took her by storm. She went and did a interview on The View with Barbara Walters, who was also an alumna of Sarah Lawrence, where um, Deborah had gone to school, gotten her education, and that essentially her the original unorthodox just exploded on the scene and um she was caught unawares and she suddenly became known and she talks about what that meant and how that felt and i wonder about that i wonder about that whole process of becoming known and she never was really known she just became visible. So she became visible in the same way that a, an articulation of a subject just sort of gets put out there. And ultimately, the truth behind her story, the truth of her day-to-day existence and her experience, her feelings, her her anxieties, her her difficulties, her sleepless nights, what she saw, how she saw it, how she experienced her day-to-day existence. That's what she visits in Exodus Revisited. That is all the information that was missing from the original. That's the Deborah on a level of being known that never showed up in the original, the sensational original. So I'm comparing the process. I'm comparing the thought process to the version of what she's giving us and how she's proceeding and the journey of articulation. Now, is that something, am I, am I making myself clear here with what I'm saying? Or do you feel that you have questions about what it is I'm, I'm talking about? So my question to you is, why did she choose to write the sensational book first and her more contextual book years later? Well, you know, I think that's a basic question that um, it's normal to ask that, right? Um, I think, first of all, when I hear that question, the word choose really jumps out at me. And I think that the choice is her awareness, that her awareness, the word choose addresses awareness, Mm -hmm. right? And I think her literal acts that 
that essentially I defined as sensational, that those very acts were articulations. Mm -hmm. And we're talking about a journey of articulation. So those acts as articulations, the question is what level, what level, at what level of awareness was she? And I think the perennial question is, and it isn't a question that we can answer, is that what stage of her own self-awareness that involves her own maturation, her own growth, her own development, um, what went into her, her decision at that time, right? But we can never know that. And it's not even, that's not even the question. The question for us is, that when she makes that choice, um, that's the piece of information that she's that she's putting forth, right? And you're saying, well, why would she choose to do that versus now tell us, right? And I think it's about this question of reveal, right? Mm-hmm. That that. The second aspect of that is that she addresses the primal aspects of her existence, right? That she does tell us that she was faced with the essential basics of how she would survive. And she does she does mention that in the first Exodus. She goes into much more detail and she really fills that in. She gives us that backstory in Exodus Revisited. And in a very real sense, her these sensational acts coincide with her struggles, right? That her her primal struggle, these primal acts mirror the primal struggle. Mm-hmm. And I think the third question, or the third um, the the third aspect of of answering that question is what sells Mm -hmm. that did she or her publisher, her editor, her, the people that were involved with putting the second of the trilogy on the shelf, what, what was the primary focus there? Was it to basically respond to, essentially what people are often interested in hearing about. Mm-hmm. So um, when she when she writes Revisited, it's as though she's putting her clothes back on. It's mm-hmm. she, we don't get a naked Deborah. We don't get primal acts. We get Deborah who is, what she's revealing to us now is the dignity and the depth of her humanity in a way that really it could be argued that there's some nakedness there, but it is an entirely different kind of nakedness. And I'm, I'm not sure I would classify it as nakedness. I would, I would classify it as a kind of knowing that is far beyond a primal 
existence. It's far beyond any primal acts. And this brings me back to the original subject at hand, which is that when we're looking at the whole subject of awareness, that when thoughts are in our mind, we're I think there's a lot that we're not entirely aware of. Things kind of hover between a subconscious and a conscious level. Then we speak them even out loud to ourselves. There's still, yes, I mean, I think that there's more uh, there. There's a more complete, more completion there. However, then when we speak them out, we get them on a page, we speak them out, we share them with other people, we get response. Um, we have the opportunity then to consider, right, to consider where we are in our own awareness, where we are in our own articulation process, right? Mm-hmm. And so when Deborah shares with us that she's, you know, she's been involved in, you know, various forms of sensationalism. The The subject here is that her, th- that those acts of sensationalism are not the story, right? Mm-hmm. That the story really is, it's incomplete, right? Mm-hmm. And just like that thought in our mind and those thoughts that we share with ourselves and even sometimes the sh- the thoughts that we that we do share with other people how complete are they really right how complete are they um when essentially what we're dealing with is we're always f- confronted with the details we're always confronted with externalizing the details. And so we're what we're looking at is completion. How the level of completion, the level of awareness because in the end the journey of articulation really is a journey of awareness. Mm-hmm. And we're striving to become increasingly aware. And we're striving to to mature, to develop, to bring ourselves into a place of completion and wholeness. And so when we talk about Deborah being known, she became visible through an articulation of what? A story that she wrote that essentially was incomplete. Mm -hmm. When she comes back to Exodus Revisited, she is really, she has sat with that story for a number of years and it's matured the gestation of that story has matured and it's finally ready to be born and that's what she gives us in revisited in the original in my mind that was not a fully gestated story mm-hmm it may have, it was it was preterm it was premature mm-hmm. and 
how many stories do we look at? How many stories do we hear? How many stories are we confronted with or even do we seek out to a certain degree or do we encounter in our lives that essentially are not, they're not complete stories, Mm -hmm. but we are often of the mind that they are. Mm -hmm. And so, again, when we think about anonymity versus visibility, Mm -hmm. Deborah was anonymous until she made an articulation, she became visible, and that set her on the path to then having to think about her further articulations Mm -hmm. and to consider what kind of feedback and what sort of response that she was getting. And she gestates, she contemplates, she hones, she progresses, and she comes back to us telling us that, yes, indeed, she will reveal herself to us. She will reveal her humanity to us. She will reveal the higher aspects of who she is to us. And it's much more exhilarating Mm -hmm. than it ever was to hear her talk about some, you know, incredibly sensational act that to many people's eyes and minds is nothing new. It's nothing different. It's very average. And yet the context of it is what made it not average at all. Mm -hmm. And yet it was memorable, but there was nothing truly exhilarating on the level of, of a higher humanity, right? That we think of humanity as we're humans, we're not animals. I know that's debatable for a lot of people, but we may engage in some animalistic behavior that doesn't make us animals. Mm -hmm. So, so when we look at her journey of awareness, we see that it is a journey of knowing herself, making herself more known. And in the end, she really is reclaiming her humanity and her dignity. She's Mm -hmm. reclaiming it. And we're reclaiming it with her Mm -hmm. as her audience. This has been an intriguing look into the subject of narrative history and articulation in the writing process. We're so happy to have our audience join us. Be sure to consider becoming a participating member of the Backstory Readers Club coming in July at www.danaisrael.com if you've enjoyed tonight's show. You can also visit us there, where our website is under construction, and you can view the latest in the Backstory blog. Join us next Sunday evening at 8 p.m. Eastern Standard Time for yet another fascinating and fabulous deep dive into the exciting world of Backstory. Goodbye for now, and see you next week.